I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part one in the series, You Were Dead, Letter to the Church in Colossae. More than 2,000 years ago, one former enemy of the church found himself in prison, writing a letter to encourage this small but growing band of Jesus followers, what was then called The Way. The church was resilient and faithful, but facing pressure from the host culture to abandon the way of Jesus. But the origins of this letter and the story of the men who wrote it has a lot to say about you and me, our church, and the current state of our discipleship to Jesus. Digital or analog, go ahead and open to Acts, the book that we call Acts in the New Testament. Acts chapter 1. Lots of ground to cover tonight. We're going to do our best to move through it efficiently. We're beginning in Acts, but tonight we are on our way to Colossians. Though you've likely heard it described as such, Colossians is not a book. We read it like one. We read it like it's a theological essay. But what we're about to study for the next few weeks doesn't even have an official title because no one titles letters. Colossian is male. It's a letter. This comes as news to very few of you, I know. But I'm bringing it up now so we can get this out of the way. We are going to be reading someone else's mail. And it's old mail. It is very old mail. And as you'll see, the letter implies that communication is taking place, as in of the back and forth variety. This thing is not a letter to the editor, you know, something that one sends with no expectation of a reply, knowing that the letter's fate is just to be read by voyeurs like us, and that's it. Now, this thing belongs to a conversation between groups of people unfolding in a relationship dynamic, and that's a problem for you and me. It's a problem because we don't have the rest of the conversation. There's no headlines to Google. There's no, you know, like... Colossians clap back at Paul's comments or anything like that. Now, this doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with the construction of the New Testament, that we only have this one letter, but it does mean that in order to really understand what the heck is going on, we have to do a lot of work building out the context into which the letter was written and read, and we can do that. We have all sorts of access to the background and culture and setting of the world of this letter, and we can and will do our very best to bring all that to bear on what we read. Because we are about as far removed from this thing as it gets. We are more than 2,000 years into this letter's future. On the other side of the world, we don't speak or read Koine Greek unless you do. I'm, I'm assuming most of us don't. We do not belong to a small persecuted minority of Christians. Zeus is no longer a major part of our lives. I hardly ever think about Zeus, sometimes, maybe. Now, look, we just spent four years of our church studying the Gospel of Matthew. That's not all we did, but it did take us a while. A lot happened in those four years. A um, guy named Tyson, his hair was short and then long and short again. Same with a guy named Kyle Oxford, short, long, short. Apparently, this is how I measure time in our church. Heck, who even knows how many times Kaylee's hair changed colors? It's probably a half dozen or more times. People came, people went, yada, 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 global pandemic, and here we are. Now, here's two problems with being a church that teaches the Bible. Imagine that we were all here 
to, instead of studying the work of the Bible, we're all here to study the work of English figurative painter Francis Bacon. Francis Bacon is my uh, favorite painter, but I'm nowhere near anything like an expert on him or his work. But imagine that I was. Imagine that I'd studied Bacon and you were here to hear all about it. I don't know why, but in this analogy, that's why you're here. You're still you in this analogy, but for whatever reason, you've come to hear me teach on the work of Francis Bacon, one painting at a time. You're still you, which means that the room would be instantaneously divided because some of you may be, I don't know, familiar with Francis Bacon, others less so. Some of you may know a thing or two about art theory. Maybe some of you don't. Some of you would agree that whatever you think about the artist and the art, unpacking each painting would probably be wrought with inevitable complexity and it would require a lot of hard work. And others might shrug and say, hard work to understand that, please. Maybe someone in here has studied art for years, and maybe someone else looks at a painting like this one, which is my personal favorite from Bacon, and they say, no, I don't like that. Teaching the Bible is like that. The Bible is a dense, complicated, divisive work of art. Some of you have been reading it for decades and studying it for just as long. Others of you, maybe for months, maybe some of you don't spend much time with the Bible one way or another. Some of you need no convincing of the Bible's complexities, while others probably suspect me of exaggerating them. But we are all coming to the same text with the same teacher to work through the same study. And we're not even all Christians, as far as I know. In this room, there's a variety of opinion as to who Jesus is and what Christianity is, which is amazing. I love that. But the thing all of us have in common is enough interest and or curiosity to get us into the same building at the same time, which is something. It's not nothing, but it's an interesting place to begin an in-depth study of a letter from the first century, basic curiosity and or interest. And then, this is the second problem with being a Bible teaching church, teaching the Bible in and of itself does not change people to become more like Jesus. Bible study alone is not spiritual formation. For years now, I've been going on about the three goals of discipleship, to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, and the third is what? Oh, thank God. Thank you. Man, that was a real risk for me, putting that in there. I was like, if no one answers, I'll just be utterly deflated for the next half hour to do what Jesus did. Thank you so much. Be like Jesus, become like Jesus, and eventually learn to do the kinds of things that Jesus did. Now, please hear me when I say this. Learning and studying the scriptures is absolutely an essential part of discipleship to Jesus and spiritual formation. Jesus held the Bible to be inspired and authoritative, and so do we. The only way we even know the teachings and lifestyle of Jesus is through the scriptures. There is no discipleship to Jesus without the Bible. But I think most of us know or have known someone or many people who know an awful lot about the Bible, but they aren't much like Jesus at all. Learning stuff about the Bible alone will not mature you in discipleship any more than learning about a Francis Bacon painting will suddenly transform you into an artist. Which is why I'm not interested in setting out on the journey to study an ancient letter for the sole purpose of just learning about the letter. Churches like ours tend to compartmentalize our rhythms, organize to the point of, at worst, 
empty ritual. So you go to church, you socialize, coffee, song one, song two, announcements, sermon, song three, song four, maybe communion, and song five, see you next week. And obviously that's not all bad. We have rhythms for a reason. Rhythms can be good. But the church is more than something to do. It's more than the dead but obligatory ritual of someone who claims to be a Christian. Church should be a unique and sacred place for disciples of Jesus to wrestle through what we believe in the presence of God, in communion with Him and with each other, a place where worship and doubt intermingle and we engage our hearts and our minds as we learn to know ourselves, one another, and the Spirit of God in us. The church is to be a place of risk and contribution where all of us show up eager to give time, energy, finances, prayer, prophecy. Maybe what you have to give is just wild abandon and worship, and that humble sincerity and just singing songs is the thing that stirs the soul of the person sitting behind you, and that's what you contribute on a Sunday night. Whatever the giving, church is dynamic and participatory. It's not passive. It is not a consuming experience in in which one shows up, sits still, takes it all in, and then, you know, maybe picks it apart on the drive home. Our tendency as a church is to idle into the safe zone. It's much easier. You have songs and sermons, and we get that. We can wrap our heads around songs and sermons. Songs and sermons we can deal with. The messiness of being in a community together or the vulnerability of prayer and worship or the unpredictability of prophecy and the kinds of things that the, spirits do, the Spirit does, that stuff can make us itchy. But I'm not interested in a new season of a food for thought Bible TED Talk sandwiched between songs one and two and songs three, four, and five. So, the plan for this series is to deep dive Colossians, that's probably obvious, and then to bring what we learn to bear on this season of our discipleship as individuals, as communities, and as a church through prayer and practice here on Sundays and in homes and neighborhoods throughout the week. Are you guys up for giving it a shot? Great. Thank you so much. If you are, and you sound like you are, at least most of you, let's get to work. Before we get to Colossians, we're going to construct a kind of paraphrased, highlight reel biography of one of the most prominent figures in the New Testament. We're going to move through Acts quite a bit, but you'll be fine. No one's going to die, at least not because of this. Let's start with Acts chapter 7. The book of Acts offers a historical account a historical account of how this tiny grassroots movement of Jesus exploded in size and spread throughout the ancient world in just a matter of decades. In Acts 7, the church of Jesus is back in Jerusalem, but it's built primarily from Jewish disciples of Jesus. That's how it started. Now, one of the deacons of that church, if you maybe you don't know this, there's two official titles or offices of church leadership in the New Testament. You have elders, maybe you've heard that term around here before, or they're also called overseers. And then you have deacons. One of the deacons of this new church in Jerusalem is called Stephen. And Stephen stands up and he tells the Jesus story, what we might call sharing the gospel, with a group of men called the Sanhedrin. Now, the Sanhedrin, if you remember back from Matthew, is a kind of a religious judicial class of powerful leaders. And they're recent, they have recently put Jesus to death. So they don't like the story of Jesus. But Stephen stands up, he shares the gospel of Jesus with the Sanhedrin. Then look what happens in Acts chapter 7, beginning with verse 57. At this, the Sanhedrin covered their ears, and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at Stephen. 
They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at, a feet, at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now, we think this whole coat thing was a, a kind of cultural supplication gesture. They are asking for Saul's approval. Then look down at verse 8. I mean, sorry, chapter 8, verse 1. Saul approved of their killing him. So the story zeroes in on this haunting image of a character called Saul. Imagine it like a movie. The camera is tight on this horrifying uh, scene of Stephen's execution, and then the camera pulls back this gradual tracking shot to reveal a lone figure at a distance watching over the violence and approving of it. And this is Saul, who would later come to be known by another name, which is what? Paul, right, but not yet. What we know about Saul at this point is that he's Jewish, he's young, we think maybe late 20s, early 30s, and he is a high-ranking member of the Sanhedrin. These offended people need Saul's approval, apparently, to stone Stephen, and Saul gives it. Now, if you keep reading Acts, you'll learn that Saul was mentored by a dude called Gamaliel, who was himself a leading authority in the Sanhedrin. So we know that this young guy named Saul was well-educated, he was well-trained, he was already in a position of power and authority amongst Israel's religious and political leadership. And he stands in strong opposition, to say the least, to this new grassroots Jesus movement. In fact, keep reading the first verse of Acts chapter 8. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. So this Saul is leading the violent effort to destroy the church, to put it lightly. Put it lightly. He is having outspoken Christians stoned to death and thrown in prison. He is actively moving from one home to another, rounding up men and women and having them thrown in jail cells because of what they believe and say about Jesus. But then things get even weirder. Turn over to chapter 9. Now, we think that this could be years later, and look where we're at. Chapter 9, verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, that is what Christianity was known as in the first century, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So now followers of Jesus are running for their lives out of Jerusalem more than 100 miles to the northeast beyond Israel. And Saul is so seething with animosity against the Jesus movement, what was then called the way, that rather than just kind of shrug his shoulders and say, okay, well, I mean, I guess job well done. We ran the blasphemers off. They're not even in the holy city. They're you know, outside of Israel at this point. No, Saul will not be satisfied until he hunts down every last member of the movement one by one to the ends of the earth. And on his way, look what happens. Look at verse 3. As Saul neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. So on Saul's way to blot the church out of existence, Paul is privy to this incredible, miraculous encounter in which he's met and addressed by the leader of the movement that Saul hopes to destroy. 
And what's even weirder about that is that Saul believed that the leader of this movement was dead, and here he is alive and speaking audibly in Saul's presence. And to Jesus, it's not just poor peasant Christians that Paul is killing and throwing into jail, it's Jesus himself that's being persecuted. And what will the risen, glorified, vindicated Jesus have to say to this murderer, this hateful enemy of the way? Is Saul about to be blown away in the presence of God, destroyed in an instant? Let's find out. Verse 6, Jesus says to him, get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. So that's weird. Saul is literally blinded by the experience, and he has to be led by the people he's traveling with into Damascus. Then watch this. Skip down to verse 10. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a voice, Ananias. Yes, Lord. He answered. It's so cavalier. I like it. Verse 11. The Lord said to him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street. By the way, this is a real street, and it's still there in Syria. Look. That's Straight Street, apparently, right around now. Uh, but I think that if you're trying to, you know, drum up tourism, you might put some smooth, relaxing jazz over this video. Visit Straight Street, and it would look like this. It seems so much more relaxing. Or if you really want to drum up tourism for Syria, you might soundtrack a clip like this with the music from Triple Diamond recording artist Hootie and the Blowfish. Just let her cry. Uh, anyway, thanks. Thanks, children. Thanks. Anyway, point is, <laughs> this is a real story anchored in history, real locations. Sorry about that. Let's just start verse 11 again. The Lord told Ananias, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street, real place, and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. A vision he has seen, a man, in his vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Now remember, Saul is blind at this point in the story. Verse 13, Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he's done to your holy people in Jerusalem, literally killing them and throwing them in prison. And he's come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. So it's something like a Jewish man hiding out on a farm in France who receives a word from God that a Nazi Gestapo officer is nearby and that the Jewish man is to go to him, lay hands on him, pray over him, and heal him. So Ananias essentially says, no, no thank you. You must be mistaken. This is the wrong guy. This guy is an enemy of the church. And on that note, Ananias isn't wrong. I'm hiding from this guy, Ananias says, and you want me to go to him? But look at the reply from God, verse 15. The Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to, now pay attention to the specificity here, to the Gentiles, which are non-Jewish people, and their kings, and to the people of Israel. So Paul is not only going to become an instrument of this movement that he was intent on destroying just minutes ago, in the name of Jewish zealousness, he will be God's instrument to bring this movement beyond the Jewish people and their kings. Before Paul dies, he's going to stand before Agrippa and even Caesar himself. And then after that, to the Jewish people. And then God tells Ananias in verse 16, I will show Saul how much he must suffer for my name. 
So after all that, Ananias is obedient. Verse 17, Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, which is an amazing image of Christian nonviolence and reconciliation. Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. So both figuratively and literally, Paul's eyes are opened, that rare once-in-a-lifetime moment of clarity that changes everything. Paul had come to Damascus to destroy the way, and now he's living amongst them. And then look what happens in verse 20. At once, he began to preach in the where? Synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, what kind of people would have likely been the majority at a synagogue? Yes, yes, Jewish people. And if you remember, the marching orders from God to Saul were Gentiles, their kings, and then Israel. But Saul is starting with Israel. Look at verse 21. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't this the man, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. After many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. So that's bad news. From persecutor to persecuted, Paul gets out of Damascus and heads back to Jerusalem. And then look, it gets worse. Skip down to verse 28. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. (laughs) So that's the cause and effect there. In the New Testament, you have good trouble and bad trouble. Based on what we're about to read, the kind of trouble that Saul is stirring up seems to be of the bad variety. Because look at verse 30. When the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened. Which is, ouch, you know, if you're Saul reading this, things actually got better when he wasn't there anymore. Then the movie cuts from Saul, and we don't see him again for a very long time. We think that years pass between this scene and where we next find Saul, maybe more than a decade of Saul living in Tarsus, making tents as his trade, Uh, living in kind of obscurity for a very long time. And then he emerges in chapter 11. So turn to the right to Acts chapter 11, and let's read beginning with verse 25. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. So now Saul's back in the story. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. So Barnabas, first of all, has, let's face it, an excellent name, yes? And secondly, Barnabas is an elder or an overseer of the church in Jerusalem. He heads up to Tarsus, he grabs Saul, and the two of them head to Antioch to plant a church. This is one of the first churches ever outside of Israel, and it's made up primarily of Jewish men and women, but also, for the very first time, some Gentiles. Now, we're almost done, stay with me. Turn over to Acts chapter 13. If you hang in there, I've got a great reward for your attention. You'll see. Acts 13, verse 1. You all right? 
I, b because we kind of, uh, the state said that we could make a VIP lounge for vaccinated people, essentially, and we're like, that's a little weird, but everyone on stage tonight happens to be vaccinated, so I'm up here enjoying not only uh, being maskless, but being able to see for the first time in a long time with my glasses. Hi, Michael. You doing all right? Thanks. Acts 13, verse 1. Now, in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Mananain, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and who? What's that? Sorry. Saul, thank you. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. So there's Saul... He's been in this church plant at the ground level. He's been working and leading, and eventually the church comes together, hears from God's Spirit that Saul is to be sent out to preach the gospel and to plant more churches. If you go home tonight and keep reading Acts, in fact, this will be part of your homework and the practice, I'm serious, keep reading it beginning in the morning. The story is absolutely bananas. Saul travels some 10,000 miles, we think, that we know of across the ancient world on foot from Jerusalem, Asia Minor, Greece, Spain, and back. And everywhere he goes, he preaches the gospel and he plants churches. And Gentiles are, it's very slowly, kind of like water through a pinprick, slowly but surely, they are making their way into the Jesus movement. In fact, there's an interesting moment of this intermingling in Acts 16. Turn there now, Acts 16, beginning with the very first verse, we read, Paul came to Derbe and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was a Jewish believer, but whose father was a Greek. The believers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. So Saul, at this point in the story, he's going by a Latin approximation of his name, Paul. He happens upon a young follower of Jesus named Timothy, who is part Jewish and part Gentile. And Paul takes Timothy as a protege, and the two of them become prolific collaborators. You can read all about them in the New Testament, what Paul would later describe as co-laborers for the gospel. In fact, in a later letter in 2 Corinthians, Paul calls Timothy his closest companion in ministry. But at this point in our reading, Paul has yet to experience a key moment in his calling. That's where we're headed. So let's look at one more thing in Acts. Turn over to chapter 18. We're almost to the reward. You guys are doing great. If you don't turn there, I'm afraid you can't have the reward. Acts 18. Now, at this point, Paul is in a city called Corinth when something changes in his life and his vocation. Paul has been, as we've seen, preaching the gospel to Jews in the synagogues. That was kind of his uh, modus operandi. He'd get to a place, go to the synagogue, share the gospel story, and reason with Jewish people from the scriptures. Remember, the Jesus story grew out of Israel's story. So this audience of Paul's, they already had kind of a working framework for the creator God, for Yahweh, for the Torah, for the prophets. And they all, in Paul's mind, point to Jesus. So he had a jumping off place to start with, as opposed to the crazy behind pagans who worship, you know, 10 sun gods or whatever and have no idea what the Torah is or who the creator God is. So Jews in the synagogue were Paul's primary audience, even here in Acts 18 while Paul is in Corinth. But look at what happens in Acts 18, beginning in verse 4. Every Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogue trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. So he's still up to his 
um, normal routine. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But when they opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent of it. From now on, I will go to who? The Gentiles. Finally, and then everything changes. Verse 7, then Paul left the synagogue and went next door. So short trip, obviously, but massive results. Verse 8, Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household, which isn't just his immediate family, that would have been family, servants, clients, employees, everyone, they believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians, so that's Gentiles, who heard Paul believed and were baptized. So it's at this point in the story that Paul has moved from partial obedience to complete obedience to the specific call of God over his life, and the results and the church grows as a result. Now, with a robust population of Gentiles among them. Imagine that. Imagine the difference between partial and complete obedience in your own life. So now, for the first time, it's not just a couple of Gentiles in a church otherwise full of Jewish people. The church is overflowing with both, both Jewish people steeped from birth in the story of God, from the Bible that Jesus knew and taught and loved, and there's Gentile people who just yesterday were worshiping a sex goddess at a pagan temple with prostitutes. So things will be anything but uncomplicated. Now there is a mess to deal with. But look at verse 9. One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you because, and listen to this, I have many people in this city. God looks out on a pagan city, an insane pagan city. Historians argue that um, ancient Corinth made Las Vegas look tame by comparison. There was greed corruption, oppression, injustice, all the things that we know, but prostitution, polygamy, polyamory, orgies, temple prostitutes, even pederasty were all aspects of ordinary society. And God says, I have many people in this city. God sees something that most people would not only overlook, but disbelieve and doubt then again, hasn't this been the story so far? Since the camera first pulled backward to reveal Saul standing in watchful approval over the stoning of Stephen, this has been the story. God sees what we do not. Okay, Whew. we're done with Acts for now. One more time, turn over to the letter that we call Colossians. We're almost done. The letter we call Colossians, it's small. Feel free to consult the table of contents. If you're unfamiliar with the New Testament, don't feel bad. It is new. I promised a reward. That joke wasn't it. I can't think of anything better than the triple diamond musical stylings of none other than Hootie and the Blowfish. She sits alone Visually, too. <laughs> But not too much, not too much. Okay, our church may be small, but it is not impervious to copyright infringement. <laughs> now, stay with me, we're almost there. Again, turn just a few books to the right in your Bible to the letter we call Colossians. This is where we'll land for the evening, Acts, Romans, First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. At this point, a lot has happened to Paul since he became a disciple of Jesus. Eventually, Paul's incredible journey lands him in prison. The big house, the stony lonesome, the thug jug. 
Paul was in prison, we think, in a city called Ephesus on the west coast of Asia Minor, about 125 miles inland from a small town called Colossae. While Paul was in prison, he's visited by a Colossian man called Epaphras, with whom Paul shares the gospel. Epaphras becomes a follower of the way or a Christian. And then Epaphras returns to his hometown of Colossae, shares the gospel, people come to faith in Jesus, and a church starts. A church made up of both Jews and Gentiles. So Epaphras, again, visits Paul after starting this church. There's all sorts of new believers. He comes back to prison to tell Paul, man, listen, the church in Colossae is actually doing pretty great, but... They are under a lot of cultural pressure and facing a lot of cultural temptation to turn away from Jesus, to turn away from the sound doctrine of the scriptures, and to embrace a a different way of life, which sounds very familiar for you and me, I think. So Paul does something he's great at. He writes a letter. Colossians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. Jesus. Stop there. The English word apostle comes from a Greek word that simply means someone who is sent out on a mission, which is crazy. Paul, infamous murderer of Christians, now identifies as one sent on a mission, but he does it in the name of Jesus. And that is as bizarre as God looking out on a place like Corinth and saying with calm confidence, I have many people in this city. Now this murderer, this persecutor of Christians is, look at verse 1 again, an apostle of Christ Jesus, not by his own will, by the will of God. Did Paul stop Jesus on the road to Damascus, or did Jesus stop Paul? Hello? Jesus stopped Paul. Paul was on his way to persecute, imprison, and murder disciples of Jesus. Paul was a violent, committed enemy of Jesus. Did Jesus destroy Paul, or did Jesus save him? He saved him. The only reason that anyone is saved is because Jesus does the saving. It wasn't your idea. It wasn't your hard work. It wasn't your best behavior. You were God's enemy, and he saw you, found you, and took the scales from your eyes, so to speak. I think we tend to misunderstand something about what happens in this strange process of what we often call salvation. One theological tradition argues that you and I had zero say in the matter. God simply chooses some for salvation and he chooses others for damnation. They argue this because the scriptures do emphasize God's initiative in saving and God alone as being capable of saving, which is true. But God is not a caveman who clubs us over the head and drags us to salvation. Later in Acts, Paul stands before a king, just like God said he would. And Paul tells this king the story of how he was saved. This is how Paul tells it. I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priest, I put many of the Lord's people in prison, and when they were put to death... I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. He was manipulative and dishonest. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in in foreign cities. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon, King Agrippa, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven. Oh, is that the end of my my story? 
Yep. Now, oh, sorry. So Paul says to the king, I too was convinced. He tells the entire story. On the authority of the chief priest, he was cunning them down. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus. He tells the entire thing. About noon, King Agrippa, I, I was on the road. I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. Essentially, Paul tells Agrippa the whole, the whole story about how he came to faith in Jesus. And then he finally says this. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to this vision from heaven. He does not say... So then, King Agrippa, I had no choice. God sovereignly predestined me specifically for salvation. Nothing can stop his will. God is in control. No, he says, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven. Pointing out that he was not disobedient obviously reveals that Paul believes he could have been. Jesus did the saving, but Paul responded with obedience. The same responsibility is on you and I, and not just a one-off, not just when we came to faith at some point in time, but every single day of our discipleship to Jesus. Now, finally, read the whole of Colossians 1 verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. Look at that. Still with Paul in the gospel mission is his protege, Timothy, half Jew, half Gentile, and together they are encouraging a church made up of both Jew and Gentile disciples of Jesus. Paul, at this point, hasn't even visited Colossae, and he wasn't the one who planted the church. But as a direct result of Paul's obedience and faithfulness, the church of Jesus was flourishing amongst Jews and Gentiles, and now Paul, with a half-Jew, half-Gentile protege, are encouraging that church together. Paul and Timothy have something to show for their obedience to God, so to speak. The work has been fruitful, the mission has been effective, but he is writing the letter from prison. The letter begins in the context of Paul in jail. Victory, but from prison. Victory in God's economy looks completely unlike the way much of the world understands the concept. In fact, much of Colossians is framed as an encouragement in light of Paul being in prison and as a response to false teaching that has begun to jeopardize the Colossian church. And that's where you and me come in. Here we are, year five of Van City Church, out of one of the world's weirdest year and counting seasons. There's pressure from the host culture, as there's always been. It fluctuates over time. Pressure to abandon the way of Jesus, discouragement, doubt, false teaching. These are things we know well. And we're going to spend time in Colossians bringing what God has to say through the scriptures to bear on our lives in the here and now. Now, you guys have been patient. Thank you. That was a lot of Bible and a lot of information. So I think it's only fair to land the plane with a story, and this particular story is about Godzilla. Now, you, <laughs> you may not know this, but there are 32 live-action feature films in the Godzilla franchise. 32. That's more than Marvel or James Bond or Star Wars. Heck, that's more than Jason Voorhees and Freddy Krueger combined. Really, there are 36 movies all said and done, 36 to be exact, but three of them are anime, and you got to draw a line somewhere. For me, that line is anime. At any rate, I've seen them all. Heck, I own them all except the anime ones. My kids and I, we watch these movies together on a regular basis. And just a week ago, 
we were watching a 1991 film called Godzilla vs. King Ghidorah. And I knew then that this was going to be an important part of this teaching. Now, stay with me. I'm going somewhere with this. This is even weirder than the Bible. In Godzilla vs. King Ghidorah, World War II Japanese soldiers are threatened by American forces when, out of nowhere, on this little island, a dinosaur crashes through the jungle and terrorizes the Americans, effectively saving this small band of Japanese troops. And then years later, hydrogen bomb testing on that same island transforms that dinosaur into, you guessed it, Godzilla, who eventually emerges you know, from the Pacific to terrorize Tokyo. Now, during Godzilla's reign of terror, the last surviving World War II veteran to have been rescued by that dinosaur on Lagos Island, all those years ago, eventually comes face to face with his savior one last time. And then this happens. He would not flee the building. So convinced was he that there would be recognition in the eyes of this friend from his past. Note the watery eyes and his knowing expression. <laughs> and it's true. Look, Godzilla has stopped. He's not storming through this building. The camera moves in. Oh, my gosh. Look at the tears gathering around his eyelids. He's thinking back to that dinosaur he saw on the island that eventually became this creature. And Godzilla seems to be looking back at him on his past and thinking of the story that they shared together. In fact, some argue that if you look closely, it seems like there's tears gathering around the corners of Godzilla's eyes. That could be light, but I did see that on the internet. Someone was like, oh, look at that. Again, he nods. He knows that Godzilla has come to his senses. Some pastors like visual aids, props, you know, like their carrot top or something. I like Godzilla clips. You could do a lot worse. You're fine. See, Toho, the studio that created Godzilla, they depict Godzilla as a godlike force of nature. This man had a personal connection with this thing, something that resonated his entire life, and he built a life from having been rescued. But when confronted with this unknowable force, Expecting mercy, he gets destroyed. And this, I have learned over the years, is how many of us think about God. Whenever I get small groups of people together to pray, I'll often begin that time by inviting everyone to just honestly assess the state of their discipleship. How is it going, following Jesus at this point in your life? And in most of those cases, we'll move around the circle, and the common theme that will emerge will be disappointment and guilt. People will say, I'm not where I want to be. People will say, my, heart's, my heart hasn't been in it. People will be, I'm not the man or woman or friend or husband or wife or mom or dad that I want to be in Jesus. It's as if they've been called to answer a test question and they don't know the answer and they're apologizing for it. And if you press them, if you ask them what they believe God thinks about their predicament, about the failure that they're assessing from their own discipleship, they will tell you that God is unhappy with them to say the least. God is shaking his angry head in disappointment. God is sick of it. God is prepared to blow them away. Or, adversely, God is so squishy and loving that he never has a bad thing to say about anything because he's all cuddles and hugs all the time. God is love, and he would never call me on any of my stuff. But in the story of the Bible... Failure is confronted, sin is rebuked, 
but it's the failures and the sinners who are then empowered and sent on mission to change the world. In the Bible, the screw-ups change the world. We end in Matthew realizing that immediately after every single apostle had denied and abandoned and denounced Jesus, Jesus' first statement to them after coming back from the dead was marching orders. He sent them on mission. Yes, all of you blew it. Now get up. We have work to do. It's not just failures that God calls, but God calls his worst enemies. Saul was on his way from murdering Christians to murder more Christians. Jesus comes to him. No, actually, we have other things to do. You're going to have to put this mission on hold. And that was you. That is you. You were God's enemies when he found you. He came to you And now you have work to do. Maybe you've blown it. Maybe you are blowing it. So what do you want to do now? If I can be vulnerable with you guys for a second, I'll tell you that when we get together in our office and we make plans and we troubleshoot or we meet with other people and we talk about what's going on with different churches and how we can learn and grow together, we do our best to navigate the chaos of everything that's been going on for the last year. What discourages me infinitely more than, you know, social distancing protocols. I can deal with those. Those are fine. What discourages me infinitely more than hearing about fights and hurt feelings in communities, that's fine too. That's to be expected. We can confront those and deal with those as well. What discourages me more than hearing that someone didn't like one of my teachings or is mad I played a clip from a Godzilla movie, that's fine too. What discourages me more, infinitely more than all of that, is not knowing sometimes whether or not we're here to follow Jesus or to kill time on a Sunday night. This thing, the church, something many Christians all around the world literally to this day die to keep going. But for us, if the weather is nice on a Sunday, we know that half as many people will show up. If the weather is nice, people won't come to church. This sacred rhythm that's been cherished by Jesus' followers for centuries is, for many, less important than a sunny evening or a ball game or a night in or watching TV. What are we doing? I want to find out. I know so many of you want to find out what God can grow from the obedience of my life. In all my imperfection and all my messed up stuff, I want to not only know that, but I want to see it happen. I want to see what he can do with your obedience and your faithfulness. And frankly, I need that for my obedience and my faithfulness. You were God's enemy when he came to you and saved you. What are you doing now? Maybe you've blown it. Maybe you are blowing it. So what do you want to do now? The practice to begin this series is at vancity.church slash Colossians. And it's going to start with a simple listening prayer exercise for you and for your community and some Bible reading. You can absolutely do it if you choose to do it. You know, I used to say this all the time. I need to start saying it more. That I don't like the expression, I didn't have time for. I think we should replace it with, I chose not to make time for dot, dot, dot. All of us have the same amount of time. We choose how to spend it. And honestly, I'm, I'm just not interested 
in trying to, you know, polish up Christianity and convince cynical young people. It's not so bad, you know, those who are worried about political ideologies and not being lumped in with those Christians. Frankly, I just don't care anymore. I want to figure out how to follow Jesus together. I want to learn obedience and what my obedience can bring forth in my family and my life and my vocation and my relationships Yes, we are all over the map. Yes, we all have different stories, and we're all in different seasons of our lives and discipleship, but let's figure out how to follow Jesus together. Not a bunch of, oh, see, it's not so bad. Please, come on, please, just two hours on a Sunday. I know the sun is out, but please. We're a church. It won't be perfect. No one will be, least of all me. But I don't want to sit around with sermons and songs and have people nod and go, eh, leaving us all in lives more interested in Instagram and Netflix than in the way of Jesus. I want to learn obedience to the vision that I received from God. People who work at churches have a near-universal inside language about summer. During summer, people stop caring about church, so you have to sort of kill time until the fall. This is true. I've heard it from every single pastor and church planter that I've ever met and ever talked with. They all do it and then talk about it in these meetings. Eh, we'll just do this because no one will be there. In fact, one of the first quips of church planting advice that Cam and I ever got was, don't take summer personally. But I don't really like killing time at church. I don't feel like delaying what I think could be a season of growth and maturity for those of us who choose to show up. God found you when you were his enemy. He didn't give up on you and your failure or your disobedience. So how is your discipleship to Jesus going? Are you doing what he asked you to do? Are you in disobedience, partial obedience, complete obedience? Have you asked what he wants you to do? Do you want to find out what God can do with even a little obedience, a little movement, or do you want to wait until summer's over? Let me pray over us as a church and ask God to come and speak and move through our small Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vancity financially at vancity.church/give.